You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. We are continuing our Easter series uh, called Come and See, and in this series we're exploring all the ways in which the resurrection of Jesus uh, stands to us as an invitation. Uh, And today, the invitation that I want to focus in on is this invitation for us to become part of this royal priesthood, this priesthood, this kingdom of priests, this priesthood of all believers. Uh, This is a phrase that crops up a few times in in, uh, Scripture. The video kind of alludes to that. Uh, The first time we see it is in the book of Exodus, right, where God is calling this group of people forward uh, and kind of uh, uh, setting them up to be this, this new way of being in the earth, this new nation, this new kingdom. And the last time we see it is in the book of Revelation, which is actually uh, one of the lectionary texts for today. So we'll get to that in a moment here. But the gospel text for today is where I want to start. And this is John chapter 20, verse 19. The stage is a lot smaller than it was the last time I stood on it. And so there's a greater than 0% chance that I'm going to just totally eat it and fall off the stage. So if that happens, I'll just keep going and we'll all all get past it. John chapter 20, verse starting at verse 19. When it was evening on that day, so this is is after the resurrection, right? This is um, is, uh, the the kind of the, the second part of the Easter story. And all of the disciples are hiding, right? They're kind of in this, in this house and the doors are locked. Uh, Quick disclaimer here, uh, I feel kind of um, uh, obliged to kind of give. Uh, a lot of the texts that are here today have been texts that the church historically has used to justify anti-Semitism. And so I feel duty-bound to kind of disclaim at the beginning of this that those are misreadings and misuses of Scripture. And so uh, where we see that here, I'll try and point it out, and, and uh, I just want to make sure that we're not advocating both, uh, even inadvertently, uh, for anti-Semitism. So, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, that's that's such a, I I love the Easter story in so many ways is a reversal of the Eden story. And this is one of those instances, right? The Eden story starts with those that God has breathed his life into and ends with those who are hiding and afraid and ashamed. And this story starts with people who are hiding and afraid and ashamed and ends with God breathing his life into them. Do you see how that's like a complete inversion of the Eden story? I love it. That's not part of the sermon. That's just bonus content for you. (laughs) Uh, He breathed in them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands 
and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So uh, a few things about this story here. Um, Thomas, I think, often gets a bit of a bad rap here. What do we call Thomas? Doubting, Doubting Thomas, right? That's, uh, I think, a bit of a misnomer there because um, it's an interesting feature of the story that Thomas just wasn't there the first time the disciples saw Jesus. And Jesus also showed them the holes in his hands inside, and they believed. Uh, and that it's an interesting thing. Thomas wasn't there, and so Jesus appears again. <clears throat> but Th Thomas doesn't require anything else that the other disciples don't also require. Like, it's not, it's not just Thomas that needs that. Jesus also does that. So I think, like, and, and also the confession that Thomas makes there, my Lord and my God. Like, Thomas is so, like, it takes the church 300 years to arrive at that conclusion that Jesus is God, right? Like, we, it takes the church 300 years to kind of work out how, well, Jesus is the Son, and he's the Messiah, but he's also God, but we're not, you know, and then there's also the Holy Spirit, but we're not, you know, we're not tritheists, we're, we're not, uh, you know, polytheists. How do we work this out? Like, it take, it's not for 300 years that the church works that out, but Thomas is kind of there already, Right? We really should call him Believing Thomas. He's, he's kind of ahead of the curve a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> and so uh, I think that Jesus in this moment really gives us a priestly template. And the first thing that kind of as a priest he confronts is this doubt, right? <clears throat> um, and I think that doubt, uh, much like in the case of Thomas, I think we also kind of give doubt a bit of a bad rap now. Um, I think that often we think of doubt, and we've said this before, so bear with me if I'm repeating things that you've heard from the stage before. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Doubt is the opposite of, uh, no, I'm sorry. Faith isn't the opposite of doubt. Faith is the opposite of certainty. If we didn't need faith, if we could be certain of everything, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't need faith, right? Doubt is not the, doubt isn't the kind of shadow side of faith. Doubt is part of Kind of faith, right? When Jesus is ascended at, after the resurrection, it says that some worshipped and some doubted. And I think that that's really an image of the church that we are still today, right? And there are times, if I'm being totally honest, there's times where I'm either or, right? There's times where I'm here and I'm able to kind of faithfully bear witness to the goodness of God in this place. And I'm able to tell you about what God's doing in my life and all the ways that he's active and present. And then there's times where I come here and, and we sing songs like we just did about God's goodness and faithfulness, and I'm just like, what are they talking about? I don't, I don't feel that. I don't see that. I don't witness that. And the key thing with Thomas, I think, and the key thing for us is that Thomas stays with the disciples, right? I don't know why he wasn't there the first time that Jesus was among them, but because he stayed within the community, 
because he was able to kind of be present there, uh, Jesus, he was able to kind of uh, experience Jesus in the same way as others. And so uh, I guess if I'm trying to give a little encouragement here in this moment, if that's you, like if you feel that, if you feel dowdy, like if you feel uh, like when we're singing worship songs like we just did where it's like, I, I, don't, I don't feel that. That's not, I don't, that's not my experience, right? Because the disciples had experienced Jesus in a way that Thomas hadn't yet. And that might be you today. Um, stick around. Because I believe Jesus is faithful to show up. And I believe that even, the, even when we don't have the faith that maybe the others in the community have, the faith of others in the community can kind of carry us through. Right? Like, I need y'all's faith when I'm not feeling strong. I need y'all to be faithful to God and to me. And I want to be faithful to you in the same way. So I think that the two main things that we do with doubt that are kind of the worst things we can do are to try and diminish them, to dismiss them, to ignore them and pretend like they're not there, which I think we do all the time, especially in church context. The other thing I think we can do is kind of kind of pump them up, right, or, or, or brag about them. I think it's kind of, um, there's a way in which uh, in modernity being skeptical of things or uh, kind of holding uh, uh, beliefs at an arm's length from, from our life is, is kind of, uh, it's something that we pride ourselves in, right? Like we, we wear our doubts kind of like a badge of honor. But I think, I think neither of those things are the things that we do. Um, I think we remain and we stay faithful. Um, so in this moment, Jesus, I think, uh, gives us a priestly template, right? He doesn't shame doubt. He has words of peace. Notice that he says, peace be unto you three times in this. I think that that's part of our priestly calling, that we have the words of peace on our lips. He gives them the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. He, he brings the spirit to bear on them. I think that's part of what we're supposed to do as well. And I think that a big part of this, and the big, like one of the big parts of the, of the priestly example Jesus gives us here is that he commissions the disciples to forgive, to go and forgive sins. Also included with the lectionary is a story from Acts chapter 5. Uh, and so I think there's sometimes in Scripture where things that are described in Scripture, we might sometimes assume that they're being prescribed by Scripture, right? The, there are things that the Bible describes and comments on that aren't commendable or, like, advisable or prescribable to us, right? And I think, I think and it's, and it's not always obvious, right? It's, it's not always something that we can spot right away. I think Acts chapter 5 might be, I'm, I'm humbly submitting to you, and if you think that I'm wrong, just disagree with me, and Robbie will be back next week, and you don't need to worry about it. We can just love each other, all right? But I think Acts chapter 5 might be an example in this context of what not to do, of, of a way not to be priests in the earth. Uh, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. This is Acts 5, starting in verse 27. He said, oh, they said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. 
The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So this story follows hot on the heels of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I think that this is, in a way, the apostles and, by extension, the early church missing that priestly calling of forgiving sins. And they're making a mistake, I think, that we often make, where instead of our primary position or our primary role vis-a-vis sin is not to forgive it. Oh, thanks. Is it, is it too bad? Hello? Is that good? Great. This is better, too, because now I, I'm not going to be, like, gesticulating everywhere with my hands. Uh, I think we still make this mistake. Instead of our posture or our, our vocation, our mission regarding sin, to forgive it, as Jesus called us to do, the church has, I think in this instance, and today assumed the role of being condemners of sin, right? Jesus never deputizes his apostles and by extension the church and us to be sin detectives or sin judges or sin secret service, right? Our, our role, and I, I mean, I see it all the time, you know, the church, church leaders and Christians kind of... Uh, assuming the posture towards sin of saying like, well, uh, my job is to name sin and to condemn it and to say that it's bad. And by doing so, showing myself to be good and faithful and them to be bad and terrible. Ananias and Sapphira, that story, for those of you who aren't familiar with that story, basically uh, there's these people in the church, this couple who sell some land and they donate the money to the church, but they secretly hold back some of it. And Peter confronts them. Well, first he, confront, he confronts the husband and kind of names that sin and condemns it. And the guy drops dead. And instead of doing what I would have done in that situation, which was, oh, no, <laughs> what have I done? You know, what are we doing here? He's like, bring in the wife. And, like, and the same thing happens to her. He, like, she, right, he, he confronts her and she drops dead. And... One of, I think, the lessons we can take away from that story and from this story, which why I think that's related to this story, is instead of trying to appeal, instead of fulfilling that priestly role of forgiving sins, here Peter and the other disciples are saying to the Sanhedrin, uh, they say, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, who you killed by hanging on the cross. Right? And that's, that's a very, that's an accusation, Right? And even though, even though like, they might have felt justified in naming that sin, and I, we do feel justified, like, I, I feel, it feels good to name sins. Like When I'm able to see something that someone else is doing wrong and I can name it, that feels good. Like, I get a sense of kind of moral clarity and superiority out of that, right? Like That's wrong. That's not our job. That's not our role. And when the church does this, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, and in the case of the Sanhedrin, Death is the fruit of it. Dissent is the fruit of it. 
in this story from Acts chapter 5, no, no one is changed. No one is transformed. No one is healed. No one is made whole. No one is convinced of everything. But just in the case of Thomas and in this, like I think that we think that our job is to, to oppose doubt, to vilify doubt, and to vilify sin, and to name it and condemn it. But that's not what Jesus does in this story, and that's not what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus says, as I have been sent to you, so I am sending you out, meaning do it the way that I'm doing it, which is healing. I alleve doubt. I forgive sin. Jesus' only posture towards sin is to forgive it. That's what God does to sin. And so when the church deputizes itself, when it assumes the role of the judge of sin, death comes from it. Death is produced. That's the case in Ananias and Sapphira, and that's the case here as well. Notice also that they kind of overlook their own culpability, right? Like they were hiding in that upper room. Not, I think, I think that they thought that they were, hi- you know, hiding from the people, but they had heard word that the, that Jesus, like Mary Magdalene had already come to them and said, Jesus is raised from the dead. I think if they were really being honest with themselves, they were hiding from Jesus, right? They were hiding from the risen one. They were hiding from the one that they had a not so indirect hand in his death. They overlook their own culpability. Even as they acknowledge their mission, even in this story, they talk about how, when they're talking to the Sanhedrin, they're talking about how God has called us to forgive sins, even as they're condemning sins. They're, they're saying, our mission is to forgive sins. Look at the sin you've done, you know? There's, there's an incongruency there. And finally, the last passage in our lectionary, uh, lectionary today is uh, Revelation chapter 1. And this is where we kind of finally see the, this uh, calling to the royal priesthood. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and who was and was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is an echo of the, that priestly calling in Exodus, where God expresses his desire for his people to become a kingdom of priests for all people. And this has been our calling from the beginning, as, as God was calling his people out of Egypt. This is the purpose he set them forward. And he's calling his church to that same purpose, to be a people of priests. I heard the phrase as a kid, whenever I heard the phrase uh, kingdom of priests, the meaning that I was kind of taught that had was kind of an anti-Catholic or an anti-kind of, it was kind of an anti-priestly one, right? It was saying like, hey, you don't need a priest to go to God on your behalf. You can go to God directly. Anyone else heard something like that, right? Like, 
Except that's not what a priest does. A priest is not one who goes to God on their own behalf. A priest is one who goes to God on behalf of others. That's what the priests in the Old Testament do. That's what priests do now. We're called. The invitation to come and see is an invitation for us to do that, but then to go and to demonstrate, to go and to, to bring that goodness and show to others, and not in a way that is condemning of doubt or condemning of sin, but in a way that is humble, in a way that shows our wounds the way that Jesus did. Sometimes that's all people need to see is that, hey, no, me too, right? I've been harmed by sin. I've been, I've been wounded. This is our calling. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Ones with the words of peace on our lips. Peace be unto you, Jesus says three times. Not as ones who accuse, but ones who breathe the Spirit, breathe life. Not those who conquer or coerce, but those who simply bear witness to what we've seen and what we've experienced. Because what we've seen, we can't unsee and what we've tasted we can't untaste right we're not it's not a it's not an intellectual thing that we're trying to convince people of no one's ever become a christian because they lost an argument but because we've seen something we've experienced something and if people are around long enough like thomas with those who have experienced something that they haven't they too will experience it as well. And that's who we, that's, that's what we do as priests. We bring people into God's presence. And in God's presence, there's healing and there's wholeness. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.